I am here with seminary Jayasara. Jayasara, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Sam. I am so happy to be having this conversation. I really, I can't tell you. I, I've, you know, it's not often that I discover someone who I've never heard of out there in the wilderness of YouTube, or which is where I discovered you, and just feel like um, I have discovered yet another diamond in an increasingly large bag of glass. <laughs> it's just wonderful to connect. So, um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a weird thing, that whole YouTube happening. It was nothing I kind of set out, intended to do. It just kind of happened. So, yeah. It's as strange for me as it is for anyone else, I imagine. Well, I want to get your story here. Perhaps we should start, well, let's start with how I introduced you um, by uh, the title of Samaneri. You are currently a nun. Uh, I'm going to want to know how you got into that situation, uh, how, you, <laughs> how, how you came to meditation, yeah. etc. So let's start from the beginning. Where, where did you grow up and, and how did you first turn your mind toward the Dhamma uh, or Dharma, depending yeah. on the language of choice? Uh, sure. What's the first moment? Wow, the first moment. You know, if you really want to know the first moment, because you're probably familiar, you are familiar, I know that, with Nazagadatta's teachings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he asked people to do is ask yourself when you had the first memory of I am. And uh, yeah, he didn't sort of set the ball rolling with that memory, but it triggered it. And um, I remember when I must have been, you know, this is a guess, but I was a baby. And so I must have been maybe anywhere between eight months to 18 months. And for some reason, I was in my mother and father's bedroom in the front part of the house. And it was in the middle of the night. Actually, it must have been more about four or five in the morning because I heard, I didn't have any conceptualization around this, but I heard the clip clop of those big horses what are those big horses called the Clydesdale oh, yeah Clydesdales yeah yeah and we had milk delivered so I was born in 1966 so this was obviously 1966 1967 and where is this oh this was in Melbourne mm -hmm. Australia so that's where I grew up and so I heard the, but the baby's consciousness heard the clip clop of Clydesdale horses obviously didn't have a concept or a name or an idea or even a picture of it but it was at that moment that I knew that I existed as a separate being. And I, I remember it now as a, a slightly terrifying moment, but also just a moment of awareness. And, and, you know, that's the weirdest memory to have, isn't it, really? But it was just, and then it must have all just kind of closed down again and I just became an innocent, ignorant child and forgot mm. that memory. And then as a child, you know, in my when I was eight and ten, had strange experiences as I think we all do, as all young children do, and kind of forget them or don't know how to make sense of them. But I, I guess I'm not saying that was the moment that I really, you know, had some you connection awakened. with the Dharma. Yeah. yeah. No, or anything like that, but it was yeah. just a memory of knowing that I existed as a separate being and um, I, I don't think I felt that comfortable with it. <laughs> mm. You know, there was like, oh, okay, here I am again in this in this separate body. So 
that and then I, I grew up in Melbourne, as I said, and um, I went to I was educated in the Catholic system, so I grew up as a good Catholic girl and mm-hmm. did all the Catholic rituals and got the names and the confirmations and whatnot. But um, I was also extremely rebellious and um, saw the hypocrisy around me, but also was struggling as a young adolescent with, you know, looking for meaning in life as we all do and not really finding it within the education system or the social system. So I think, you know, I was always drawn, I went to yoga classes when I was younger with my sister, just as something fun to do. And I think my first real connection with the Dharma came through well, I don't want to discount the Catholic upbringing, okay, because mm. I, you know, I, I found meaning in what Jesus taught and in what the saints taught, but I also didn't quite get it. It was so weird the way it was presented and it was all about fear, a lot mm-hmm. of fear and, you know, threats. But, you know, I I took away a lot of the the deeper principles of that to live an honest, kind life and, you know, everything that Jesus taught was unquestionably right but the church itself and the 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 institution just didn't uh didn't gel with me and I rebelled against it (laughs) got Mm. into lots of trouble almost got expelled from school a couple of times and so when I went to university I happened upon probably this is when I was about 19 I happened upon the writings of Krishnamurti and again, just spontaneously, because I was mm-hmm. studying politics and sociology, and that didn't have, didn't grab me at all, didn't like it at all. So, I don't know. I was wandering in the university library and picked up these books by Krishnamurti and thought, "Wow, you know, it's like a bit like you're saying you discover stuff, and it's like, wow, how did that happen?" So I just devoured all his teachings and tried to somehow integrate them into political studies essays, which didn't go down too well because right. the, the emphasis was always on looking at the systems and he was always talking about look, the individual needing to look within, as you know. So that, that probably got the ball rolling. And from there I did numerous things, um, Vipassana retreats, LSD mm. trips, everything you mm. do to kind of try and awaken and um so this would have been around the, 1985 86 87 you think yeah, yeah. yeah yeah that's that's exactly yeah, I when i mean you and i are exact more or less exact contemporaries i was born in 67 same age, yeah. yeah yeah that's right yeah so when i was 21 i did my first 10 day vipassana retreat mm. and that blew my mind who's your and where really, where's your with, with? goenka uh-huh. i did that in 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 the blue mountains in new south wales with mm-hmm. the goenka organization and I was heavily involved in that organization for about eight years mm. and was a bit of a retreat junkie right you know, they do you know that system I so, do I do, do. You, know, I, you know I've yeah. never sat under that system I've done a lot of Vipassana practice but always in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition you know so yeah, yeah I've never similar but different yeah I've never done the you know, the, you know I mean I've you know dabbled in the kind of the body scanning technique but I've never spent much time with yeah. it and I, and I also in, uh, encountered very early on a strange degree of sectarianism in that 
group. I mean, I was non-sectarian. Yeah, I was, exactly, exactly. But I mean, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I've I heard it said, and this is many years ago, that Goenka students were forbidden to even sit in a hall where other people had been doing a different style of practice or something bonkers oh, yeah. like that. Look. Yeah, look, I could go on. And again, I, I rebelled there. I got into trouble there just like I did at Catholic school and kind of got kicked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't tell you the the context in which I, but I rebelled and I questioned and I used to get into trouble. I was, I was in my 20s mm-hmm. and I lived, I served for a year up there and practiced. And um, Did you ever go to India? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I went to one of the centers in India and did a 20-day retreat there and mm-hmm. Got into big trouble there. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to have to hear about some of the details of this trouble. <laughs> no, 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 I can't tell you. It's too outrageous. Uh-huh. I have to write a book maybe. I'm just a bit embarrassed too because I just, I'm just a rebel, you know. And right. But, yeah, all that stuff, I could go on about the retreat, but a bit like the Catholic school, I don't want to, I don't want to sound ungrateful because I got so much out of it, mm-hmm. but there's so many limitations about it. It is more cultish than they like to think they are yeah. and more sectarian and yeah I, I went and sat with, with Buddhist monks and nuns and went to the Tibetan places in Melbourne and sat and I had to keep it secret mm-hmm. because right. they, they're so paranoid about people doing other things and it's like hang on you're teaching the Satipatthana um, methods here yet you're not claiming any you're not giving any credit to the Buddha you know overtly anyway mm-hmm. So they they want to attract people, I suppose, who don't want anything to do with religion, which is fine. But, you know, you've got to credit your sources. And (laughs) mindfulness, Vedana Upasana, mindfulness of the sensations, which they they kind of give so much emphasis to, is the teaching of the Buddha. And and the stories that Goenka tells are the teachings from the Pali Suttas. So people don't know that they're actually just going to a Buddhist retreat but it's dressed up in all sorts of weird things that have been imported from their own conditioning. Goenka's conditioning is a Hindu Brahmin mm-hmm. and coming out of Burma with its own emphasis on pra- way, way to practice. So, yeah, within that retreat, I, I, I was a manager there for, for a year. I had to go and tell people, don't do walking meditation. It's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Don't look at the sunset. Oh, this is what the teachers told me to tell them, right? Perfect. I didn't I didn't want it, but I kind of became a servant. And don't look at the sunset. And I had to get them out, drag them out of bed at 4 a.m. And and oh, do all sorts of things. And then if anyone went off, which they often did in those retreats and had psychotic episodes, mm-hmm. I was there for a few of them. And the remedy was... <laughs> there's there's leave. nothing Ask more them to leave. There's nothing more comforting <laughs> when you're having a psychotic break to hear from someone who who just told you not to look at the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> look, I could write a book on that and I'd probably get sued. But um I I remember driving I was a lay person, right? This is before my monastic days. Mm-hmm. And I had to drive people so a young girl to the train station who was in the throes of a psychotic meltdown because her vibrations were seen as you know, harmful to the place and to the other people, and make sure she got on a train back to Sydney. Mm. I was 23, 24, so I didn't know what I was doing, but now I think, oh, my 
God, how irresponsible is that? You know, and I don't know what happened to that girl, but then I met many people who'd had psychotic episodes and there's no duty of care, I can tell you that now. Maybe they've changed, who knows? I don't don't have anything to do with them anymore, but yeah, some horror stories from that. So I always gently try and encourage people to, to take that those practices carefully because they're boot camps and they they throw people in the deep end and and there's a lot of discussion you might be aware anyway Sam a number of Zen teachers are looking into these problems that can arise from these intensive retreats and how to best take responsibility and deal mm-hmm. with it but I heard that the Vipassana organization aren't interested in dialoguing unfortunately around it so anyway i was involved with them for eight years and i guess you could say i established a pretty solid practice meditation practice because you have to Mm -hmm. (laughs) you kind of get beaten with a stick if you move and um so you know you'd be sitting up to 12 hours a day in those retreats and having to practice be encouraged to practice at least two hours a day and sit in aditana which means don't move Mm -hmm. So I guess I got that out of it, you know, a certain discipline. Yeah. And let's just talk about the more positive side of things because there's always two sides. And a good moral practice. I mean, at 21, I I took took that practice up with a lot of enthusiasm and gave up my little bit of experience of drinking alcohol for a couple of years. So I never touched alcohol again. Mm. I I eventually gave up smoking dope, which I'd been doing for a number of years and was much more conscious about living a more moral life, you know, just looking at some of the, the grungy things I was doing and being more conscious. So, yeah, it had, it had really good things. Mm-hmm. But um, I eventually had to move away from there because I, I saw the, all those limitations and um, I was more interested in, in the, the way that the the Dharma was being pre- presented at the local Buddhist organisation in Melbourne at the Buddhist Society of Victoria. So I started attending there. I did that. I did that in secret first when I was with the Pashna, but then I just gave up on them and started practising, you know, with um, people who weren't afraid to declare themselves Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So I started to, and that's a Theravadan tradition there, so that's how I kind of got involved in Theravadan Buddhism. And, yeah, it kind of just kept going on. Did you ever have a phase where you were shopping around outside of the Buddhist tradition? Did you study with any Hindu gurus or anything like that? Well, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always open. That's the thing. I I'm, I still shop around. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. mind's just always open. So I, I remember going to some... Uh, well, I was always into yoga, put mm-hmm. it that way. And... Um, so I, I, I think I went to a Sri Shinoi thing once. That was a bit weird, but and um, obviously I was into Krishnamurti and right. um, look. I, and I started. I was studying a post grad, a master's, and a PhD in comparative religion. So I started reading, having to read, all sorts of religious stuff. So I was, I was reading all sorts of Advaita texts and Ken Wilber and mm-hmm. stuff and um, Gene Ge- Gebser and um, all, all sorts of educators like Rudolf Steiner and uh, Martin Buber and, mm-hmm. 
and then all the different sorts of religious spiritual texts and yeah so and then my PhD was a comparative study on Buddhism and Western psychotherapy mm. so I went deeply into gestalt therapy because you probably know with your background that Fritz Perls mm -hmm. took a lot of his ideas from Zen Buddhism yeah. the study of Zen Buddhism and um, yeah brought that into the therapeutic context so yeah I was that's the thing I mean from an early age from Catholic school I was always just interested in everything and that was part of the problem for them because you were, <laughs> I didn't, you were I didn't too Catholic just... yeah <laughs> <laughs> no no I wanted to you know I was always interested in everything else too yeah no but I mean well, that, I there's Catholic that other meaning uh, that, that other meaning oh. of the word Catholic which is to what? sample from a oh. wide range of of things so you know eclectic is that is that what it means yeah oh, yeah right. see I didn't even know that so um <laughs> Yeah, so so for people who don't know, Krishnamurti, which was your starting point, I mean, he was, uh, he certainly billed himself as a kind of anti-guru. He had mm. been plucked from the beach by um, almost certainly the uh, fairly uh, pedophilic interest of uh, a theosophist um, and then and inducted into the fold of theosophists as essentially the, the messiah and then at a certain point disavowed his status as the savior of our age and then you know quite comically and perversely and you know essentially right out of the Monty Python film the life of Brian the theosophists <laughs> reacted that's exactly what the messiah would do the messiah would disavow so they just wouldn't, they wouldn't let him out and so he he strenuously got himself out and then continued to teach for many many years and he taught a a kind of non-dualism, but it was um, very stripped bare of any religious reference. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he he insisted that his disciples not read any spiritual literature at all. They they could only read, uh, yeah, I think they could only read like crime novels, you know, like thrillers <laughs> oh, and God. you know just books for fun, right? Because it, I mean, any yeah. indulgence of to use Trunkpa's phrase, spiritual materialism was a real stumbling block in his view. So there was just nothing mm. you know, worth sorting through in that refuse heap of uh, the world's traditions. So did, did you go down the rabbit hole at all with uh, Tibetan Buddhism? Did you study in any uh, context? Oh, no, I wouldn't say I went down the rabbit hole, but I, I used to, I've been on a number of Tibetan retreats and um, I, I, I find all the bells and whistles and all the all the complicated things too much for my mm -hmm. kind of simple brain. That's why Theravadan appeals to me. There's nothing particularly flash about it, and you know it's a bit. It's like the Vipassana retreat. It's mindfulness, and you you don't have to do lots of bowing and prostrations. And I'm not good at visualizing either. I don't yeah. have a very visual mind. So, and it just it was too esoteric for me. But having said that, you know, obviously there's teachings within that that aren't. So the Dzogchen teachings really spoke to me right. in its clarity and simplicity. And I attended a, a number of Dzogchen retreats over the years. With and, who? With, with, what, what teacher? Oh, Sogni, Sogni Rinpoche oh, and Dzogchen, Dzogchen Rinpoche. And then one in my 20s, and I don't, know, I don't remember the name of the Lama. Hey, it could have been someone huge, huh? Yeah, that's right. And I, I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. And I, when I was doing the Vipassana stint, I used to also secretly go to um, Tara House in Melbourne and sit with them. And, mm -hmm. and when the Gyoto monks came, 
because they, they have a base in Victoria and they'd often have these sessions in the morning chant, doing their, you know, that throat chanting. Mm-hmm. And just go and sit there and like, oh, wow. Yeah, that tritonal Didn't understand a word. Yeah. Didn't understand a word. But I just sat there and meditated because I was always trained just to sit and meditate and it was great. And it was, so I always liked Tibetan stuff, but I didn't delve into it, into, you know, all the non-dro practices or anything like that because I was just doing my own right. thing with Theravada anyway. Yeah, that certainly mirrors my experience with Vajrayana i.e. Tibetan Buddhism, mm. although it ultimately became my my real home within Buddhist practice. It was since I had done a fair amount of Vipassana practice before arriving in, in Nepal to study with Tukurgan, Sokni's father, we essentially managed to negotiate a backdoor entrance into Vajrayana Buddhism, in, into the Dzogchen teachings. I mean, the, the front door is normally you have to do these all these preliminary practices, uh, the nundro and you know prostrations and visualizations and you know, mantra practice, and like you, the garishness of the religiosity that adorns mm. the the edifice of Vajrayana Buddhism was something that I always found fairly off-putting, and in, actually in a way that I didn't find Hinduism off-putting. I, I mean, Hinduism just seems like it has always seemed very fun to me. I just I, I actually do love. Kirtan and the iconography of it. There was something about Tibetan Buddhism. I felt like, okay, well, this is just another form of religion and magical thinking. And yet it is in fact true that going in the back door, you're delivered into something that is as stripped down and diaphanous and free of cultural reference point as seems possible. You know, it's sort of more Zen than Zen. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, by sheer good luck that uh, I was able to take that journey into it. And it was also good luck that I, you know, met Tukur again, who, because most Dzogchen teachers don't really teach the way he did. And it's totally possible to yeah. get a much more traditional framing of it, which really doesn't let you separate the you know, so-called highest teachings of Dzogchen from the rest of the machinery of, of the Vajrayana, which, again, if you're not, if it's not to your taste, if you're not a, a visualizer who wants to learn essentially how to be a, a medieval village lama, there's a lot to bump up against and uh, find off-putting. And I, mean, so I, I have friends who did, you know, multiple three-year retreats at, in France, and mm. the stuff they were trained in so much of it seems irrelevant to the the business of actually awakening and and stabilizing that awakening. I mean, so, you know, if what you did in Goenka's system is the just the pure attention, you know, rigorous practice part, the opposite end of the continuum is, you know, you go into retreat and there's not even all that much silence, and you have to learn Tibetan, and you have to learn to how to make. Uh, the relevant, you know, sacred ornaments, and you have, I mean, there's so many rites and rituals, and it's mm. not to say that they're not also preserving quite a, a repository of esoteric wisdom there, but in terms of how one can prioritize the use of one's time and attention, it was not seeming optimal. So that's just to give you my view of that situation. Yeah, and I can see that, but you know, I'm 
we're involved now with um, another Tibetan retreat center just down the way from the Hermitage mm -hmm. uh, in the Sakyan tradition. And he's a very learned um, Kempo there and has been a monk since he was nine years old. And he's very kind of Rime in his practice. Mm -hmm. You know, he incorporates all Rime being non sectarian. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's invited us to teach and whatnot. And Aya Jatindria, who lives with me here at the Hermitage, she's had much more involvement in Tibetan Buddhism, even though she's been a Theravada nun for twice, but mm -hmm. once for 17 years, and she did lots of Tibetan retreats and studies. And she's often explained that to me, because like you, I'm like, God, it's all just kind of superstition and a bit waste of time-ish. But it, it makes more sense to me now. I mean, there's the cultural stuff, and then, yes, it can go it can go to one extreme. But I think with the, the, there is the purpose of those preliminary practices, yeah. same as with any of these um, Buddhist lineage, as, as purification. You know, the, you have to kind of purify and get that stability happening. And it can seem weird on the surface or a waste of time. But I think there's, there's a point to it. You know, in terms of the non-dro practices, I think mm -hmm. it, it, it does prepare one for, you know, a deep realisation that one wouldn't have the capacity to do if they just kind of, you know, like Vipassana, jump in the deep end and have a psychotic episode. Mm. You're welcome. <laughs> but it's like <laughs> you've, got, you've got to purify your mind first and and do something with your whole body, your phys phys physiology too, in order to be able to handle the energy that comes with awakening experiences. And I think that's what all those prostrations are about. And, and um, it's getting, shedding the ego more and more, little bit by little bit. So it's kind of a, I think it's a gentle way. And it, it happens within Theravada too. You know, you, you, you prostrate, you chant. It's much, just much simpler, that's all. Mm. And you keep, you keep your precepts because that, again, is a preparatory practice. It's not that morality is the cause for enlightenment but it's certainly you know as you're preparing yourself for awakening if you don't have good sila or good morality uh it can all go a bit weird you know yeah. and all sorts of things can happen if 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 th those doors of perception open up and you're faced with your demons <laughs> and so i think there's a point to it but and for Tibetans, it probably makes complete sense. For Westerners, it's just a bit weird. Ironically, I, I think the best nundro for Dzogchen is Vipassana, you know, or Vipassana slash yeah. metta. Yeah. And the greatest yeah. preparation for Advaita is also mindfulness, in my view, because the, the thing you can fall off of, this is kind of jumping ahead to the, the truths we want to talk about here, but it, it seems to me that what you can lose when you fully fall under the spell of non-dual teachings is a sense that there really is something to stabilize, right? That, that, you, can, that you have to make a moment-to-moment -moment mm -hmm. discrimination as to the difference between being clearly aware of the truth you now think you have in hand and being distracted, right? So if you're going to truly practice the non-meditation of non-distraction, right? If you're beyond all method, right? If that's mm. the steep path you think you're now on, you know, I've met many, many people who, uh, and I've, you know, and I'm at various points in my life, I, I've been this person who have just lost the path, right? You know, the, you, your view is now as, as expansive as 
the cosmos, but you are spending your time essentially not practicing because you now have a, a philosophy that has equalized nirvana and samsara and you're you're you know there's no there's no reason to adopt the artifice of practice because you have seen through all that this is something that i ran into you know most um egregiously with punjaji uh, you know a, a teacher who was Papaji, yeah, yeah, yeah who was incredibly useful to me and, and as about as mm. charismatic a teacher as i've i mean really the most charismatic teacher i've ever met uh, or you know certainly tied with the most charismatic teachers I've, I've ever met. But, you know, under his tutelage, the truth was any concession to practice is a an admission that you really haven't gotten the point, right? Mm-hmm. So they, basically, he pulled the rug out from under everybody. Many people were left just asserting that there was nothing to do and no one to do it. And yet not, if I hadn't, at that point, if I hadn't had at least a year on Vipassana retreat, under me, I wouldn't have been able to recognize the error on the other side of the path there. I mean, I I was keenly aware of the error of making too much dualistic effort to strive my way up the mountain of enlightenment, but there was this antithetical error, which was to imagine that uh, merely glimpsing this truth of non-duality was sufficient and that there really wasn't a an ongoing care required, and whether you want to think about it as effort or not, to not overlook this reality ever again. The best preparation for that, at least in my humble opinion, is having a very clear sense of of how to practice mindfulness continuously. And that's something that I guess people can get it doing a traditional nundro, but it's hard to imagine a better nundro than, than the kind of attention to detail one was getting from Burmese-style Vipassana, you know, whether it's uh, the Ubakin variety or the Mahasi Sayadaw variety. I mean, it's just the moment-to-moment, continuous, albeit usually dualistic, grinding away on, on, on the present moment. Yeah, but I also think that life is probably our best teacher to say whether we've arrived or not, because, mm. you know, if we think there's nothing to do and we've arrived and we've seen it through it all, Go and live with your family for a while. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, look at your yeah. look at your behavior. Look at the reactions within yourself or people towards you. The feedback you get, you know, th- that'll tell you whether you've really transcended suffering. And it's yeah. always that's always yeah. for me the litmus test is, you know, is there suffering? Am I still clinging? Even and you know, and you've got to be honest with yourself too, because some people can just go into denial about that and think it's all. It's all wonderful and they're wonderful, but, you know, that's what people are for. They give you feedback, honest mm-hmm. feedback, when you think you're a, uh, you know, realized, enlightened being and someone goes, no, you're not. Have you, have you been talking to my <laughs> wife, Annika? Sounds like there's a, there might, might be a back-channel well, communication. Partners are, good for, <laughs> partners are good for that, aren't mm. they? You know, yeah. they, they, they give us, and, and children, children will set yourself, set you right. Have you got children? Yeah. Two daughters uh-huh. who uh, yeah. are not taken in by my spiritual heirs at all. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. They'll keep you grounded. They'll keep yeah. you real. So now, have, have, yes. have you have you become a nun to avoid this kind of useful feedback? Well, I can't avoid it. That's the <laughs> thing. As a monastic, gosh, I've lived in monastic communities, and they're you know they just poor. Mm. You just come up against your stuff big time within those communities. People, you know, 
trigger so much stuff and you trigger stuff in others and you've just got to look and work through it. They're, they're tough. They're really tough places to live, mm. monastic communities. That people think that's all lovely and everyone loves each other and gets on well. It's like, no, no, there's all sorts of stuff so you have to work through. Let's retrace our steps back from this detour to your story because I, yeah. so I want to know uh, where else you practiced and, and who you studied under. Did you have other... Theravada teachers after that and, and what and what monastic communities have you lived in? Yeah, so the main monastic lineage that I'm involved in is the Ajahn Chah, the, mm-hmm. the Theravadan forest. So you might be aware of his first Western disciple was an American Ajahn, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Tomato. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still alive. He's 86, 87. And he's back living at Amrawati in the UK, but mm. he had—he's only been back there for a year because he spent ten years in back in Thailand. But when I ordained as an Anagarika for the first time, second time actually, but sort of first time. Long story. In two thousand and four, I—I took precepts with him, and at uh, in Amrawati, and mm. spent a couple of years over in the UK and Ireland practicing and um, they've got two monasteries, oh they've got three monasteries in the UK so I spent time in Chithurst and Amrawati and some of the other branch monasteries but just for a short time. What is that life like? Is it like being on retreat full time or is it more of a... No, uh, no it's a mixture I mean his, his approach is very much like Ajahn Chah's was which is to you know, integrate life and practice and don't see them as separate so that I'm only meditating when I'm on silent retreat. You do have periods of silent retreat there and they have a three-month winter retreat, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lovely time to be in the monastery because things slow down and they don't come to a complete stop because you still got to do chores. But there's a lot of silence, a lot of time for practice. And then the rest of the year you're, you're living in community and that's the thing. I mean, when you're living in community, you have uh, within that monastery, you have plenty of time for practice, you know, in, in solitude, but you're also trying to keep the monastery functioning. So you're working and doing, you know, cleaning, cooking or driving or whatever it needs to be done. Hmm. And, you know, honestly, that's that time is when you really see the Dharma at work because you see your own defilements coming up, your reactions how, how much you're letting go, you know. Mm. And so that's as valuable, if not more valuable in some in some ways, than just being enjoying solitude and silent retreat. And so Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedha always gave emphasis to that, not to see one as better than the other, to learn from right. all situations for Dharma. And it's true, you know, really you become more integrated that way. Because the problem with Vipassana, you know, I, I was a retreat junkie. You know, I thought, oh, I just got to do retreat after retreat after retreat. Uh, having said that, they also see the value in service. So I did a lot of service as well. But um, yeah, it was always you felt like, oh, I'm only doing practice when I'm in silent retreat. And it's not true, you know. So mm. I, that's what I was saying before with living in family, living with others is, is such a powerful time for, for waking up you know, to see what's really going on, honestly. Mm. So, that, yeah, that's why I like that that, that approach too, because it worked for me. When you were doing the 
Goenka practice, were you doing it, and I guess beyond, I, mean, uh, I guess I'm asking about your practice also uh, under Ajahn Sumedho, were you doing it under the, the framework of a kind of classical progressive insight model where you're trying to balance the factors of enlightenment so as to have a kind of breakthrough cessation experience, which is the, the path fruition moment <laughs> that, that, uproot, yeah, that uproots your defilements, or which is to say, was there kind of a dualistic, striving, goal-oriented approach to mindfulness, or did you have more of a, I guess, a, you know, what's, what I often consider a kind of Thai-style, you know, Achan Cha-style, you can recognize the mind of the Arhant right here, coincident with normal waking consciousness. Yeah, well, I think in the Vipassana thing, it was taught like that, that you'd have to strive for these kind of weird-sounding, what do they call it, the Bawanga, mm-hmm. where the dissolution. You know, but I'd already had my dissolution, so and I wasn't searching for that again, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. And I, so I wasn't really striving consciously, but I was obviously striving. But, you know, I think I was striving to come out of suffering more than anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I just to just to find a way to be in life in a in a relaxed open awake way but without having an identity about that if you know what i mean so you know it's still just i don't know how to explain it but just being open just to learning each day about what was being pointed to was was my practice and still is you know it's just a moment to moment thing of what's going on right now and where where am I holding? Am I grasping anything? How how awake am I in this very moment? Mm. And and to let go of looking for anything other than what is here and now, but also recognizing the power of the here and now, because it's nowhere else. You know? Yeah. So you mentioned LSD a few minutes back. Did how much I did. of a role that's like <laughs> you did it? Whether whether you know it or not, you did. <laughs> How much of a role did psychedelics play in your um, journey, and, and it, oh. did they stop playing any role? And I mean, and how, how do you think of the um, <laughs> the connection between uh, the the, you know, the wisdom uh, that may or may not be gleaned uh, that way and meditation practice? Well, I can only speak from my own experience. I wouldn't want to, because you know I'm weird, and I had weird experiences on LSD that no one else was happening having. But I, it wasn't a very long relationship with it because it was just too strong. Mm. But I, and then I got into Vipassana and I realized I should, shouldn't do any drugs. But I think I was 20 when I took my first LSD trip. And it, yeah, I mean, boy, did the doors of perception open. Mm. But uh, as I was saying before, that's when I had my dissolution experience. <laughs> it's just like, well, my friends were like, ah, oh, it's lovely, isn't it? I'm like, oh, gee. I just got, my whole body was just dissolving and I I was aware of the impermanence of this body-mind experience to such an extent that it was, um, well, it was both both blissful. There was bliss there at the beginning and then it just got terrifying because, you know, I just thought, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm going to die. And I was telling them, telling my friends that you just don't tell mum and dad I took LSD, right? Just just say I died. (laughs) I was convinced I was going to die right. because the experience. <laughs> tell was them, one tell of them I'm dead dying. for another reason. 
<laughs> yeah, just don't tell them I took drugs because they'll freak out. Just, just, just say I died. <laughs> I didn't think about autopsies. <laughs> but anyway, so I was kind of, I was in this state of just, and they're like, what are you going on about? And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying. And because it, I was, I, mean, I am, we are, you know, these bodies are dying moment to moment. But to have that experience as an ignorant 20-year-old, not kind of having any sense of stability or awareness about, yes, the body is dying, but there's something within you that is deathless that can just watch this, wasn't so familiar with that refuge in my 20s. So I was just identified with the body-mind and everything was just dissolving around me, you know, like the whole world. But it was coming back again. That was the thing. It was arising and ceasing. So I just had this kind of really powerful awareness of in, of impermanence and also the horror of when one is identified with these impermanent structures. Hmm. Uh, it's terrifying. And this is what we go about doing, isn't it, in our daily life? We identify ourselves as the body-mind and we're constantly trying to defend and protect it and uh, and because we identify so strongly with it and therefore life is pretty pretty stressful and lsd just for some reason opened up that awareness for me and i i had to kind of somehow get through that experience which i did but you know you'd call it a kind of a a, a great a great trip at the mm. beginning it was like wow everything was open and one and then it was all focused on me yeah. And when it focused on me as this impermanent entity, it got really scary because this me was um, this me was dying, this ego was dying, and I wasn't happy about that. So it was an ego death, my LSD experience, mm-hmm. and and very scary. And so then I took two more. Uh, I don't know why. I think as I one needed does. to. Yeah. It felt like I needed to resolve it. Yeah. When I say two more, not there and then. Right. A couple of months later. Yeah. And they both ended. They both ended in this kind of oh thing. Mm-hmm. But big, big insights. But I just know that my mind is not capable of, of kind of whole, handling it. It was just too much. So meditation, the meditation path is much gentler for yeah. me as way as a way of purifying and, and developing stability. But it it did play a role in some ways mm. that you know. You saw deeply into the nature of reality, well, the conditioned reality, and then you had a glimpse of the unconditioned too, which people do on these drugs. Like I know ayahuasca is really big now and giving people glimpses, but the problem is that people then think I'm going to get enlightened through ayahuasca mm-hmm. experiences. Well, they have one. They have one big awakening and they think that their work's done, don't they? And then they go around telling everyone they're enlightened now. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they get the idea that that enlightenment must be a matter of maintaining some intensity. <laughs> yeah, extraordinarily intense, phantasmagorical yeah. state. You know, where it's about more yeah. content. You know, like the contents of consciousness need to radically change in order yeah. to transcend the self. Whereas yeah. the it should be reasonably clear that if enlightenment is possible there's some part of its bandwidth that is capable of having a a rational conversation or driving a car or you know not not showing up as a psychotic in public (laughs) 
and just integrating. You just yeah. integrate these experiences, but you don't. People just cling to them, so then they think, "A oh, life is so boring. I need another mu- uh, mushroom trip." Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, learn to integrate boredom. You know, mm. le- learn to and to go beyond boredom or this perception of that life is boring and dull, because if we're experiencing normal life like that, then there's something not right. Mm. You know, we have to go beyond that. So how do you think about freedom at this point? Freedom? Yeah, if someone's at the point of all of this, you know, why pay attention to any of these things? What's your, if, if someone, you know, comes to you not knowing anything about the Dharma or, you know, whatever their, whatever their associations are with the, the concept of meditation, uh, you know, obviously many people come to meditation now with fairly superficial and instrumental associations with it like you know it's about you know, stress reduction or it's good for your health it's about you know productivity uh, you want to sleep better at night how would you describe your view of the the ultimate point of all of this yeah well freedom is i think just freedom from ignorance and delusion of of separate of this separate self that we walk around with i think that baby again you know that it's like that baby was like, oh no, I'm I'm in a prison here. But that's what, that's what I remember it was like. So like, oh, I'm encased in the body, and I I have this sense. I know that there's a separate self developing here. So to be free from that, and the LSD experience was was a real awakening to the horror of believing in this separate, impermanent self, mm. and you know. To, to be transcend that is freedom to, to really, yeah, drop those shackles of attachment. That's what freedom, but I don't know if that makes sense to many people, you know, how many people that makes sense to. So the people who are going to be hearing this conversation almost certainly are, are interested in, in meditation and are, are, are practicing the, the various tracks of meditation in, in waking up and you know, I, I don't have data on this. Uh, ultimately, I, I might, but I have to think the vast majority of them are, you know, whatever their level of experience, they're practicing mindfulness dualistically, right? They, you know, they've heard me and others rattle on and on about the illusory nature of the self and the fact that there's something about that that can be realized directly, that is experientially, and and that at that point, mindfulness has the character of actually feeling like freedom from the delusion of uh, identification with the self. But in the beginning, it certainly doesn't feel that way, and it didn't feel that way for me for the longest time. Um, and even if I had moments, you know, on, on retreat... What did it feel like for you then? Well, I think the starting point for me, and, and I would imagine for virtually everyone, is you know, you're told, you're given this first instruction to pay attention to the breath, say. You know, and um, that gets widened to include everything in experience, sounds and other sensations and even thoughts themselves. But the point of view is of being a kind of a locus of consciousness in the head, and you're now you're aiming your attention at objects. And there, there seems to be a duality just directly implied there and, and experience as such. And then the, the, the sense is that you can do that more or less precisely and you can get, the goal there is to get closer 
to objects, right? Like, like you're, you know, if you're a seat of attention in the head, and you're paying attention to the breath as, you know, the rising and falling of your abdomen, the breath is sort of beneath where you are, right? And you have to aim your attention to those sensations, and you have to get closer to it. And the and the logic of doing that in the first place, again, if you're in in this in certain types of vipassana practice, you're actually trying to to make something happen, right? You're not the present moment as is isn't actually good enough. You're trying to build up enough continuity of mindfulness so that you can have a kind of breakthrough. But leaving that aside, even if you're of the view conceptually that the present moment is, in some sense, already pristine and free of self, it doesn't necessarily feel yeah, that sure. way. Because there's no freedom and, from and self. Can, <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're the yeah, meditator, exactly. right? You feel like the yeah, meditator. Yeah. And even when you sort of notice your thoughts coming and going, and then you, and then you bring yourself back to the object of meditation, even that kind of micro moment of waking up, I mean, being able to differentiate being lost in thought and being found again so that you can put your attention back on the practice, even that in the beginning, and, you know, honestly, depending on, you know, factors of good and bad luck for the longest time, doesn't feel like any kind of real freedom. I mean, it is it is a kind of freedom in that you you can stop the machinery of suffering in one way because you're no, you're no longer perseverating in that thought stream. If you can bring yourself back to the breath and train that muscle of, of disengagement from thought again and again and again, there's a certain type of freedom. There's a certain type of self-regulation there, but it doesn't immediately announce its non-dual dharmakaya-like characteristics because it feels like it's me over here, no longer lost in thought, and now I'm paying attention to the breath, and there's a, however you, you want to think about what the remaining identification is there. I mean, in, in many cases, it's yet another thought that's gone uninspected. But most people listening to us now will be stuck there in some sense, and I, I wonder what advice you have. Well, what, what you just said is, is the very thing that needs to be just looked at. So what the experience of the, the struggle, the kind of ambition to get something and, and then feel the, the restlessness or the agitation or the sense of hopelessness and failure that comes with the practice is the thing that needs to be looked at itself. And then that in that seeing, oh, there, there's this cycle happening of, wanting, doing, of striving, of practicing with this kind of tension that, that's causing this. And when, I, when one sees through that, then you let go and you, you let go of wanting. Because so, it's just, I mean, it, it depends. If people teach like that, that to some extent you kind of have to at the beginning, don't you? There's methods because we live in the relative world and we, we do have such a strong sense of a self. So you pick up a tool a method and it's always going to start out as a dualistic practice but then the way to, to go beyond that dualistic practice is to start to see the nature of duality itself that whenever mm. there's this striving and ambition it causes tension in the mind tension in the body and can we just let go of that i think it's somewhere in the middle of papaji's kind of don't practice mm -hmm. and um vipassana's practice <laughs> 
practice until you have a psychotic break <laughs> that we have to kind of find the middle path of practice and you know it's like to me it reminds me of the buddha's analogy of the of the raft you get on the raft for practice but once you get to the other shore you, you leave the raft behind but i, th- I th- don't think we leave the raft behind it just you know it's no it, it's no longer useful because you've You've seen it, but you you need something to hold on to at the beginning, and that's why there are these, you know, techniques of watching an object like the breath or the sensations or mantras, visualizations. They're all just skillful means. But when we pick them up in such a tense way of I'm this is the best practice and I'm gonna do it because I'm gonna get enlightened and have a breakthrough. So just me, 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 trying to get something again for me, me, me. So, you know, the whole approach that Ajahn Chah emphasised was just look at that, look at how that very approach to practice creates and perpetuates the ego. And um, But then we think, okay, so what do I do? I've seen through that. <laughs> it's like just be, just see through that and trust the Dharma. And I think I think what might, an element that might be missing, because I'm, you know, you heard from the beginning I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm not. I've never been a good religious Catholic girl. Mm. But I do think there's what's often missing in these dry approaches to to mindfulness and meditation. Because you know you want to chuck out everything to do with religion, which is fair enough. But you know devotion and all those words like grace and mm. trust and feeling a kind of a, a faith in the Buddha Dharma or whatever you know, whatever you can relate to. And I think that's why, you know, I'm happy to stay within Theravadan Buddhist robes because I do have such a, I don't know how, could be just some past life thing. I just have such a deep faith in in the Buddha and the Buddha Dharma. Mm. And having that element of devotion enables you to go beyond thinking it's all up to me and I'm going to do this and get enlightened. And I just have to be rational and sensible and do it and figure it out. And it's like, no, we've got to actually, we've got to be taken to our knees in this. We have to be down on our knees and being willing to die completely to all of that and Mm. trust that there's, you know, if you've had glimpses of that within meditation or even with psychedelics, you know, you sense that there's a much higher power going on. It's got nothing to do with me, who thinks I know it all. And that's operating. And um, when you come in contact with that, it does. It just pulls you to your knees and you realise you've got no idea. (laughs) But the more we're willing to surrender to that, I think the more our practice can can actually flourish and flower. And I think that's what devotion means. It doesn't mean blindly following a religion or a teacher or a deity or something, but it's about Mm. feeling that devotion within your own heart that connects with that, whatever that is. God knows. I don't know what it is. But it's when you come upon it, you go, you're kind of left like that. Maybe for me sometimes... I listen to the words of Long Chempa through my own voice, which is weird, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm listening to myself. Yeah, I, I know, and for some I know reason, yeah. <laughs> and as I'm listening to it, and and I, something weird happens, and I just feel this immense devotion come up, and it ends up in these tears, you know, just feeling waves and waves of just sobbing 
but not sadness. But I don't, and I don't even. I'm just watching myself, thinking that's interesting.、Mm. Just brings up this huge swell, and、um, and I just trust that. I think, well, got nothing to do with me.、It、makes no sense to me. But there's some opening happening, so just、mm. let it happen. It's not. I don't see it as right or wrong. I don't see it as good or bad. Or I don't label it. But it's just comes from the deep place in the heart, and 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 then I end up. Sometimes reflecting on the fact that wow, you know, this amazing being in the 14th century wrote these most incredible teachings for the benefit of future generations, you know, and here we are today receiving them, and there's some incredible power in it, and that's what started me on this whole recording thing and reading these. Yeah,、uh, I realize, I, well, I, but let me just interrupt you there, Jaisar, because I realize、sure. in starting this conversation. I didn't actually describe what what I had discovered of you online and why that was so powerful. So you have a YouTube channel、uh, where you have been reading some of the greatest teachings ever spoken or written, and、uh, so you've essentially produced guided meditations based on these wisdom texts. And、uh, we're, we're actually, you know, depending on when someone's listening to us now, th- these will. Many of these readings will already be in waking up, or they they will be soon coming. But I I just stumbled upon your YouTube channel. I don't you know I've it's not a total surprise the algorithm sent me there because I've I've listened to other teachers and、uh, looked up teachers who I've who I've studied with in person, etc. And but、um, I found your I was actually looking for audio to listen to to fall asleep to, and that's how I reached out to you because I mean you have a I don't know if it's going to be apparent to people listening to us just talk normally here, but you have a a genuinely hypnotic voice in in your readings, and as also in addition to just being a a wonderful voice. So I was finding these so useful for sleep, and not just sleep, but I you know I have my insomnia is such that you know I'll fall asleep, and then I you know I might wake up after thirty minutes, and then you know fall asleep again, and and do this many times a night, and. The experience I was having of waking up to the sound of your voice, you know, in in the middle of of reading teachings from you know Longchenpa, who you just mentioned,、uh, one of the greatest Zogchen yogis of all time, and、um, or or Nisargadatta Maharaj, someone more modern, a, a, an Advaita teacher and who lived in Bombay and became quite famous in the in the eighties as.、Um, Really, one of the the most articulate sages of the 20th century. You reading these teachings in your own voice is such a wonderful experience to come back into consciousness, or you know, normal waking consciousness, and then just sort of rest in in the you know the indicated state, listening to your readings, and then to fall back asleep from that position. It really was turning my nights of insomnia into. These extended practice sessions that were、um, really quite amazing. I mean, they, they were so nice that I, I wasn't. I, I was sort of looking forward to a night of insomnia, right? <laughs> uh, it was arguably counterproductive from a, a sleep point of view in the end. But anyway, I'm very happy to say that we're including your readings in the practice section on waking up under at the time of this. Conversation, a yet to be determined title of of that section, but it will be under、uh, practice. And anyway, so back to you. How did you come 
to do this. And I mean, I, I, in listening to you do it, it's you're the perfect person to be doing it. But in listening to you do it, I, it occurred to me, why didn't I ever think of doing that? Right? I mean, it's so it's such a simple idea to take the greatest wisdom texts ever and read them as guided meditations. But um, and, and and you do it so beautifully. So anyway, well, what, yeah, what, and I guess that, that that whole that whole phenomena is not my invention. It's it's been around since the Middle Ages or more, hasn't it? Because what's it called, lectio divinia, lectio mm. lectio divinia. So that's about reading sacred texts in a mindful, meditative way with lots of spaces. But I didn't kind of think, oh, there's this ancient method and I'm going to try and manufacture that. It was all spontaneous and it was mainly because, I mean, I like reading and I do get a lot out of reading, but I I, I guess part of my practice growing up within the Theravadan tradition is you listen a lot to Dharma talks and when you listen to Dharma talks, you're encouraged to listen not in a analytical way just to open and receive it's like a transmission if you like Mm. and so I've I've done years and years of practice of listening to really good dharma talks from realized teachers and and I know how effective that is and then I you know would read a little bit of Ajahn Chah Ajahn Sumedho and find it inspiring but it the more transformative way of learning for me has always been listening to dharma as well as practicing in silence and just listening to myself so it was just spontaneously one day I was reading some Padmasambhava teachings and and I picked it up, this old text up that I'd written out um, 15 years ago and I thought, wow, that's amazing, but I, it didn't impact me as much as it did now than you know when I'd written it 15 years ago. So mm-hmm. I thought, I'm just going to read this text, a long text. So I read it and I actually put some music to it as a way of creating a, a more meditative space and some supports because I find some music can be helpful for that. And then um, I thought, that's amazing. It kind of just started a wheel in motion for me of understanding Dharma at a deeper and deeper level. And then I shared it with Ayajitindriya and she equally found it helpful. And then I thought, oh, I'm just going to do some more of these teachings and listen and listen. And then just, I don't know, I had a YouTube channel from when I was a lay person, I never did anything with it. I just, you have to sign up, don't you? And I think during COVID, we were tuning into a few things on YouTube. I thought, I'll just put, I'll just put this Zogchen text up and it was pretty amateurish. Then I put a few more and then I'd read some Ramana Maharshi, a few advice and just popped them up, you know, every now and then. And started to get a few views and people saying that was great and really enjoyed it and then just joking with Argentina she said oh you should do this you should do that make it a little bit more professional I said don't worry I'm only going to probably have 50 subscribers or something if one day you know I think I had 20 and then wow started to get bigger (laughs) and bigger now it's like nearly 60,000 which is in terms of YouTube is not that big there's people who put up cat videos who get millions of subscribers mm. and wrapping paper videos and get millions. So it's small at one level, but for me it's quite big because it, it's kind of engaging more and more with the world, which um, oh, it didn't it set out to do. I'm, I'm quite hermetic and a bit of an introvert 
And um, so, but I kind of just surrendering to it because it's helping so many people. Like your story is is very common. Yeah. And there's all sorts of stories I get. And that just inspires me to keep going because people's practices are deepening. And yeah, it's just helping people come out of suffering. And that's the whole intention. And um, it's it's a good it's a good modern tool for disseminating the Dharma if it's used properly. So I just trust it. And because they're the words of the masters, primarily, they're not my words. So they're all good and they've got a lot of power in them and they're transformative. And I just try and read them from a place of um, openness and, you know, empty out. I don't, I don't practice to empty out. I just try and just do it. And somehow it works, you know, and then somehow the right music presents itself. So the more I can get out of the way and just read them and let them create themselves, which they do, I'm, I'm often blown away because it's like, I didn't do that. How did that happen? You know, it just came together somehow. So then I, it's more effective, much more effective that mm. way. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're so good. I mean, the one thought I had was that, you know, if I could curate the contents of my consciousness on my deathbed, this is the kind of audio that I would want in my ear. You know, it's just it's, it's just so on point and um, delivered so well. And anyway, so anyway, people will discover that elsewhere. Yeah, and look, app. it may not work for everybody too. That's the other thing. Some people might, you know, may not like the sound of my voice with this sort of slight Australian accent. And yeah, you know, I know some people. This is funny because oh, I've read a who's lot been of Tom, traumatized Tom, by Hugh Jackman or somebody. <laughs> No, but I, I read, I've read quite a lot of Thomas Merton. I really like his mm-hmm. teachings. Yeah. And someone wrote, well, it shouldn't be read by a woman. You know, right. why Why isn't a man reading it? I was like, oh, God. So just because a woman's reading it. And I don't even hear a woman when I'm reading it or I'm listening back to it. It's just like the words of the masters. So I feel like Thomas Merton's talking to me. <laughs> what to do? So it, it, it won't appeal to everyone, but it um, doesn't matter, really. Mm. I can only imagine you're having the experience of putting this audio out there and receiving a a, just torrents of gratitude from people listening to it that again is because it's digital and on the internet it's at a scale that is completely surreal with reference to the details of you know, any, any ordinary life, and certainly the life of a a normal bo- bo- Buddhist nun <laughs> who's living as a hermit in a tiny <laughs> hermitage in Australia, and you're hearing from people all over the world, yeah. and you and you, I think you'll be hearing from many more people as a result of of your inclusion in in waking up. And I, I guess I have some version of this happening on my side as well, but I, I can imagine you have even the purer case of it, which is. You now have a just this incredible echo of the the kind of the implications of your own private practice, right? I mean, you're just sitting there meditating and reading these texts that are meaningful to you, and it takes comparatively very little effort for you to export that to the rest of the world. It certainly doesn't take you, you know, physically going anywhere or getting in front of crowds of people or being a you know, a famous guru or, 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 you know, putting yourself out there in, in the, the usual ways. 
and to reach people by the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and in some cases, you know, at this point collectively, you know, millions of streams, it's truly wonderful because you're, you're just, you, you see that what you're doing in private really matters, right? It's not, it can be an abstraction. This idea that you're practicing for the benefit of other people can yeah. be, you know, it's not a total abstraction, but you know, you, you have these face-to-face encounters with, with, you know, a handful of people throughout the day and it, they go as well as they, they go and, and you have some sense that, you know, if you were wiser and freer and more loving, they might go better. But there, there, there's something about making something of the sort that you have produced and putting it out there and ha- and just seeing the evidence of how f- how valuable it is for people in their practice that I, I have to think is uh, is very nice to behold on your side. Yeah, it is. It's very inspiring and touching. I'm very touched a lot by how it's helped so many people and people who've been in really dark places too. Yeah. You know, or just simple things like people say, I'm, I'm blind, you know, I've got visual problems and I can't read Dharma anymore and this mm. has kind of been a lifesaver for me. So I was like, wow, you know. Yeah. I kind of didn't yeah. think of that. So there's a lot of people out, or people who are dyslexic and got other issues with reading and how do they hear the Dharma, you know, and this is the Dharma. That's the thing. It's not just kind of pop stuff either, you know, it's pure, pure stuff that go at, that goes straight to the heart. So it's very inspiring. But I think with this whole phenomena of, because I do get a lot, if you read the comments, people heap praise upon praise upon me. And so I have to, you know, really look at that because it's got, this is the whole practice, isn't it? We're trying to transcend the delusion of this me. And it's so easy to get pulled into this idea that I'm special or I'm, advanced or that I'm enlightened or I'm this or I'm that. And people call me all sorts of names like Samanera-ji and Giriji and mm. Mataji and Amma. And that's fine. I don't have a problem. They can call me what they like. But I've got to hold it in a way that doesn't delude me and, or inflate my ego and also just reflect that, you know, it's not me and the world. It's just the Dharma being shared within the whole sounds a bit mm. kind of new agey, I know, but, you know, kind of got to get into that space of reflecting that, that the, of the emptiness of it all, but that somehow, you know, this, this body-mind that's um, presenting it is just a vehicle, it's just a channel, literally it's a YouTube channel for the Dharma and that, that you know, there is no Jayasara there, it's just a, a voice empty voice that's speaking and resonating with the same empty awareness within that other person. So if I come back to that, it takes out the kind of celebrity thing or the, the guru thing or the... Because I can get a bit overwhelmed and think, oh, I just want to go and hide in a hole. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want any of this stuff. It creeps me out. Well, when I catch you <laughs> wearing your first pair of aviator sunglasses and buying a Rolls Royce, I will pull oh, you aside God. and, and uh, oh, remind make, me. make sure you you find the straight and narrow again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, I started with Krishnamurti, of course, so that kind of put me on the straight straight away about gurudom and all this stuff. And, yeah, it's just not – I just – I don't want to be a rock star guru, and it creeps me up. But at the same time – I don't want to just pull back because it's just ego then saying, I, I don't want to be noticed. 
So I just have to go, okay, for some reason, I'm being used here. I'm being used as a voice to share the Dharma and, and if it's helping people and as long as I can stay sane and um, grounded, it'll be effective and useful. But I have plenty of friends to, and family who will bring me straight back to earth if I get too mm. big for myself or I think, start to think that I or this is something really special. You know, having said that, it is special because the Dharma is special, but we, we ha- how do we pick it up? How do we hold it? Mm. It has to be held with a lot of wisdom and, and compassion. So, yeah, have compassion for me, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit weird. Mm. <laughs> well, so are, are, you, are you actually, are you teaching actively? I mean, do you lead retreats or do you have students? How do you, how do you show up in, the, in IRL? At this point, IRL. Oh, well, we in, have to, in real just, life. Oh, an abbrevi- abbreviation for in real life. I thought o- it was off- like a URL. Yeah, offline. We have yeah. got a URL. Yes. Yeah, we've got a URL now for this Baker is, Hermitage. This is, this is the URL of Planet Earth. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, look, I try to keep a quiet life, and this YouTube thing has um, not helped. Mm. So, um, but we. We've just moved to Viveka Hermitage, which is a little quiet hamlet on the south coast of New South Wales because we'd been in a much busy, bigger and busier monastery a few hours north. And because you know, myself and I, Jutinja, are now in our mid to late 50s, we kind of just want to move away from bigger community, living in bigger communities and spend more time to quiet practice. Mm. But, you know, we also got to be careful that we're not selfish Theravadans. <laughs> <laughs> or um, otherwise known as Shravakas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just thinking about our own enlightenment. So we're we're offering retreats. Um, well, not well, not offering retreats yet. We're, because I told you we're linked with the Tibetan monastery. We've got mm-hmm. a really lovely relationship with them. And um, Kempo Lars invited us to teach a day long nice. in a few weeks. So that's kind of be that's a little day long teaching, and then we'll just see what happens. But. We don't go around thinking, oh, I've got to go and t- teach a 10-day retreat. I've got to develop a following. We just let it happen. And um, I, Jitendra, is an excellent Dharma teacher and has been teaching for many years. So yeah, I'm happy to sort of join her at times to teach day-longs. And if, if the occasion or interest arises from this day-long at the Tibetan Centre, we might look into doing a five-day, 10-day retreat or something. But... We don't go out of our way to do that stuff. Just, right. I think I'm doing enough on YouTube, don't you? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're certainly you're doing it at a scale that when you when you compare the scale of what you can do online with the scale of what you can do even at the largest physical gathering, you know, yeah, te- exactly. teachers ever had. It's quite amazing that. And yeah, it's got an easy reach. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I can just be behind this. Actually, on the recording. On the topic of gurus and, and teachers and all the drama that one can often encounter in that space, I, I'm wondering, what do you think about teachers, just the, the phenomenon of teachers who have obviously had real awakenings? I mean, they're not, they're not frauds in any <laughs> normal sense, and, and they've even produced real awakenings in others, but who have nevertheless betrayed the trust of their students by behaving terribly in their roles as gurus. I mean, so that there's just kind of an ethical unmooring in certain teachers. We could go down the list of people who have um, covered themselves in in shame here. What do you think about that phenomenon? I mean, how do you, you, because it's very easy to think about a a fraud, 
right? Someone who's not not awakened and is merely parroting the the, the life changing insights of of other teachers and teachings. But clearly, when you're talking about somebody like a random example, you know, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, you're not talking about a mere fraud. You're talking about somebody who legitimately had real insights and real experience, and yet created a fair bit of chaos. Wait, how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, funnily enough, I don't know. It's funny. Life's funny. I was actually reading about Chogyam Trungpa last night because I was just reflecting on that whole phenomenon. And, I mean, I don't know, you hear all sorts of the stories, and I wasn't there, so I can't comment. But some of the things that happened and some of the behaviours were, like, really dodgy, you know, really questionable. And yet you read his teachings and it's like, wow, blows you away. But, you know, see, within the Theravadan tradition it makes sense because the Buddha talked about the different stages of enlightenment you know, so you're obviously familiar with them, Sam. So the first stage of Sotapanna, when one sees through the three um, the three fetters of um, the main one being the belief in a separate self, and then from then on you have the other stages of enlightenment. But until one is fully realised, there's still defilements can still arise, fetters can still arise. So uh, I don't want to comment on what stage Chogam Champa was. I mean, most people believe he was a fully realised being, but how does a fully realised being get addicted to alcohol and take cocaine and have copious sexual relationships under the guise of having, what do they call them, the Tibet consorts, mm-hmm. and be violent and whatnot? I mean, to me it just sounds like, yeah, he was he was very insightful and awake but I don't think he his behavior seemed to indicate that he hadn't completely disbanded his ego and maybe he was just shy and that's like I remember when I had to go on television once to do some performance and I just I drank some alcohol to get through when I was in my 20s and maybe he was just shy and that's why he got addicted to alcohol to give him and, and cocaine which gives you strange confidence and Whatnot, but then people just project so much onto gurus, and then you can't see the you know, and then it's all just really cloudy and murky, you can't make any sense because there's so many projections about it. But I was also reading this article because I do contemplate that and try and understand it. But I was reading a Zen article too, which talks about the different levels of awakening, and that I think they call it stage four or something when you've had you know, genuine awakenings Tories, but you're still learning to integrate it within the life and um perhaps you know for someone like him i don't know some arrogant comment on on him but maybe he was just <clears throat> still hasn't fully integrated but i think chogam was one one thing but there's just so many out there now on youtube and beyond who just have one powerful awakening and then they're suddenly enlightened experts, you know, mm. and they're starting their own following and cults and so and they, they haven't got half as much to offer as what he did. Mm-hmm. So it is a it is a phenomena, isn't it? But I think it's just it's just the example of delusion, the delusion of the ego and the tricks that it plays on us. And that's why I said before I just gotta I gotta be really mindful with my own trip here. And, and not get deluded or fooled by people's projections. Because I think it's a two-way thing. 
you know, you start projecting on the guru and he or she starts to believe it. Oh, yeah, I am special because they keep kissing my feet and telling me I'm wonderful and that they're having these amazing experiences around me. Mm. And I fall asleep at night and I wake up to the sound of your voice. (laughs) 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 And it's amazing. Gosh, I must be special. (laughs) And I believe it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just about integrating and keep keep working. That's what practice is, isn't it? We, we keep practicing. And, and even the greatest teachers and lamas have said, you, practice, you keep practicing your whole life. You don't stop. Mm. Just keep practicing. Keep waking up each moment. It seems to me that there, it matters how one views certain concepts here. I mean, so I don't think it's an accident that more of these problems have happened, at least by my count, in Tibetan uh, than in Theravada and also within you know various Hindu or Indian contexts because it, it, they happen heaps within Hindu ones yeah too. exactly yeah because yeah 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 I mean one there's the concept of the teacher versus the you know, the concept of the guru and and how those uh, I mean guru just means teacher but the way in which those show up I mean the, in Theravada the teacher tends to be much more of just a a mouthpiece for the teachings and it's less there's less of an explicit call to devotion that's directed directly at the teacher uh you know as guru and so it, what once you yeah. once you introduce that variable where the 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 guru is essentially what you need and all you need and uh you have to have some kind of blind trust in his or her but usually his perfection, right? That's where things get dodgy, you know, psychologically and socially in, in most of these spiritual communities and, and contexts. And Theravada has much less of that than certainly Vajrayana or, or you know, Hinduism. And also, you know, what, what Zen and Vajrayana have that Theravada doesn't have, really, is this kind of non-dual, almost post sila view, right? This post-morality view, which is morality is basically the training wheels on the bike that at yeah. a certain point you no longer need. And if you really know how to ride this thing, well, then you're going to be a, a crazy wise guru who can do anything, right? And transmute, uh, you know, all of the energies of, of sexuality and, and libertinism. And I mean, you're now a tantric, right? So now you're, you're a tantric with consorts. You're not a rapacious uh, Lothario, who's uh, preying on his students, um, no, you're actually, you know, this is all, you know, in, in gratifying your desires, you are transmitting, you know, more than your venereal disease to uh, to, <laughs> to your devotees. And that's where, I mean, so then you see people like Trungpa and various other gurus visibly. I mean, you can see it from, you know, a thousand miles away, how they're getting caught in that. And the Theravada tradition has much more of a clear safeguard against that because, you, you, again, you don't have the, the guru principle enshrined in quite the same way, and you and you have an you have an emphasis on sila, very you know, morality, very often in a, an explicitly monastic context, which which makes any tantra, you know, or or, or supposed tantra just a, a, a you know a synonymous with you know breaking your your vows. Yeah. So. Um, and and I don't think the Galupas have, you know, within Tibetan Buddhism have had this problem to this degree for yeah. similar reasons. Yeah, well observed. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, that's probably exactly right. But again, it's like there's always two sides to it. So if the Theravadans get up themselves thinking that they're special <laughs> and, you know, it's because we keep our sealer better than everyone else and it, it can get... Um, Whenever these these kind of comparisons about who's better and who's doing it properly, it's problematic. But I think the the, the emphasis of sila in the Theravadan practice is probably a good mm. safeguard, uh, as long as it doesn't become paralyzing in other ways. You know, another identity, right. another we're doing it better than everybody else. And so I think you know having the crazy wisdom is, can break help people break through. Uh, holding on to anything like perfect sealer but if it's very rare beings that have that crazy wisdom isn't there i mean even the buddha wasn't that crazy jesus did a few yeah. crazy things but yeah i just it's really hard to know and trust and when and when we're not fully awakened ourselves we don't know and we can be open to so much abuse so yeah well it, it's a paradox just, i mean it's sort of a paradox from several sides here because it it is, in fact, true that, you know, sila is, is part of the raft that, you know, when you take it to the other side, you, you don't then pick up the raft and carry it on your head, yeah, right? It served yeah. its purpose. So that really is the, the teaching. And it's not the nondro practice, really, yeah. the sila. You know, it's yeah. preparatory. It's... And then, then someone like a, a fully awakened Buddha might do something that people think that's really weird or say something, but it's coming from a place of deep wisdom and understanding. You know, yeah, yeah, and, and, and even they're not thinking about God. Got to keep my five precepts or my right. the veneer, you know. But even even more paradoxical than that, it's also true that a person can be genuinely helped, you know, from a, a dharma point of view, by someone who, viewed from the other side, is actually taking advantage of them and, and you know acting unskillfully and, and unethically, right? So it's like, you know, if you're going to have a a self-absorbed mm. guru who's forcing all of his students to go dig ditches in the sun, as uh, I think uh, Gurdjieff who did that did uh, Gur oh, Gur yeah, Gurdjieff yeah. did with his his uh, you know in addition to dispensing fairly unintelligible, cr fairly crazy teachings, you know he humbled his uh, students, which included a basically uh, like the cream of the crop of literate and creative you know Victorian England at a certain point. Uh, and uh, some of America, I mean, he, so he, he just attracted, you know, very smart um, cosmopolitan people into his orbit, but then, then had them go dig ditches pointlessly day after day. And whatever his actual state of consciousness and his actual intentions, it's also true that somebody who's coming from a world in which they're incredibly important and all of their egocentricity is, is catered to, on an hourly basis, for them to go be told to dig a ditch, that that can provoke actual epiphanies, right? They can they can actually be yeah. helped by that intrusion into their egocentricity, and that doesn't necessarily exculpate the the, you know, the guru in question from abusing people or pointlessly stealing their their energies in in various ways. But it's just yet another confusing element to all of this because people can come away feeling that they really benefited from a fair amount of chaos they were exposed to mm. by a, a teacher that viewed from in, in his or her totality what you, you'd have to say 
okay, that was that was fairly crazy. You know, you know, Rajneesh, you know, otherwise known as Osho, you know, buying his 92nd Rolls Royce and putting botulism in the salad bar in the in the town because they're you know they're at war with the town politically. I mean, I don't know if you. I don't know if you saw that documentary yeah, yeah. on his his saying, yeah, you know, wild yeah. wild country. Once you're bringing botulism to the salad bar, you know you've you've, you've probably you're you're outside of the crazy wisdom purview. And AK-47s, didn't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they exactly. Stockpile all these weapons. Yeah, but yeah. but still, people yeah, I, were helped. Still, people can honestly say that he changed yeah. their lives, right? So, but so you yeah, know. Well, that's what I said at the beginning about the Catholic system and Vipassana. Right. <laughs> you know, there was a fair amount of what you'd consider kind of unskillful teachings and hypocrisies and sort of slight child abuse sometimes yeah. as it's growing up. But um, I think really it comes down to the trust in the teacher too. So, but that even saying that, it's like, well, because some people can unwillingly give their trust to a teacher who isn't worthy of it. But you have to spend time and develop your own wisdom about that. About where where this person's coming from, and I think you're right. When it gets to that extreme, you, you probably should run a run a mile. Having yeah. said all that, you know stuff happens, and people learn from it. Even though you know, and the guru is deluded, we learn from that. We oh, this is what it's like to live with a deluded guru and experience abuse and harm, and therefore we learn not to put ourselves in such positions like that again and we grow from it so i don't want to i don't want to excuse it because some people are heavily traumatized but unfortunately that that's what life teaches us to to grow through all these heavy traumas and um to hopefully propel us to learn to come out of suffering ourselves because we're not going to get it from the guru anyway you know they might help but they're not not our saviors yeah. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the cash value of anything you're getting from a teacher has to be at the level of your own moment-to-moment experience, right? I mean, you, you are alone mm-hmm. in the end with your, you know, with, with and as your mind. And yeah, uh, yeah. so the, the question is, how does the wisdom get in there or get unfolded. And what about the whole the whole reality of recognizing the teacher within? That's for me that's the thing is to learn to trust that actually all the wisdom and the guidance you need is within yourself if you learn how to access it. You know, and that voice can become stronger that kind of uh, GPS system can become stronger and stronger the more you practice so that it's not that you discount learning from other teachers or being devoted to certain teachers that are worthy of it but you see you keep it in balance they they have a lot to offer but ultimately the best teacher is pointing you within to say hey that's where your guru is what do they mm-hmm. call it in the advaita system but the sadguru and um, yeah the buddha would talk about find your own refuge within the buddha's within your own mind within, within your own heart and um, you can't buy it, you can't shop for it, you can't suck up to it because <laughs> it, it'll always mm. be honest too. That's the other thing. It's uncompromisingly honest, that inner guru. And um, so that I think that's the only refuge we can really trust ultimately because who, who can judge others, you know? We don't know where they're coming from sometimes. 
on the external level? Well, all I can say is that I think many people within the waking up community are about to have the experience of the inner guru having more and more of an Absolutely. Australian accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why I read them because like they're all dead most of them, so that's good, mm. you know. <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to confuse us anymore by their strange behaviors. And most of them were impeccable anyway, as far as I know, who knows. But their teachings are unquestionably amazing and um mm. and they're just speaking directly to what we already know so if that can help you know keep us away from um unskillful <laughs> teachers then that then it's serving a good purpose really well jayasara it's fantastic to speak with you i'm i'm hopeful that this is only the first of many conversations and um again i'm very happy to to have your your voice uh, on waking up uh, in the form of, of these readings. And um, you and I have been having a sidebar conversation about the possibility of you, your, your own guided meditations. Meditations, yeah, sure, so, sure. So, uh, yeah, we, we will get that going. And um, I think many people will benefit. So um, let's just uh, call this the, the beginning of the conversation. And uh, thank you for all that you're doing and, and for giving me your time today. Oh, you're welcome, Sam. And, and can I just say, just as a kind of, because I need to as a, a Theravadan Buddhist nun, that this, these teachings are being offered to Sam and to the Waking Up app freely. And um, so, you know, I'm not entering in, into any contractual commercial relationship with um, with these. And Sam is um, welcome and has made a very generous donation which will support the Hermitage and support other Theravadan monastics who are doing it tough. Um, so the Dharma, from my position, needs to be always offered freely. And mm. uh, so please receive it in that spirit and, um, and much merit to Sam for supporting it too and to his um, community there. And it, um, whatever financial support is um, offered through donations will certainly just be used in a, a simple way to support the Dharma in, in myriad ways, supporting other centres as well. So thank you for, for the invitation, which I, I reneged on initially yeah. <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. But uh, he's quite convincing. Yeah, he's yeah. quite convincing. <laughs> he knows how to get into the back door to see Tulku Ergen, so he, it didn't, uh, you know. He, yeah, he offers I, 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 so many scholarships. <laughs> I, I've I've learned not to take no for an answer in, in Dharma circles. <laughs> I, I gathered yeah, that. Yeah. I gathered that, and and also the, the the kind offering to many people for this app, who, people who can't afford it, can have access to it. So that's really wonderful, and that's the spirit of, of Dharma, and that's why I agreed to be part of this thing. Mm, Another nice. weird thing. <laughs> yeah, well, let's linger on that for for a moment because it's just interesting. Because I think as we as we engage new technology and and new opportunities to share, this is not putting it too grandiosely, you know, life changing wisdom with more and more people. Uh, it's just it's appropriate to use you know the best tools and to engage all that you know all of what's possible there and. It's interesting to, to try to figure out what is the most straightforward and ethical relationship to have to money and resources and philanthropy and institutions, et cetera, et cetera. 
And you as a, you as a nun obviously have taken certain precepts which constrain the way you ha you have to behave in the world and that that's fine. But there's no perfect system and people there's a tradition in in dharma circles that you know the the, the dharma needs to be offered freely. And um that's wonderful and uh, there's a certain purity to that but it comes with its own downside and I've, I've seen the downside of that I've seen I've been in organizations that endlessly have to fundraise because yeah. they're they're run as charities I've seen the politics around figures like his holiness the Dalai Lama which again who's endlessly fundraising you know yes yes the teachings are offered freely but when a Hollywood celebrity shows up, you would be amazed at how the, the alacrity with which the organization uh, snaps into place and showers attention upon that person that even a long-standing practitioner in that tradition never receives because, you know, it's, it's just this asymmetrical benefit. You know, a movie star shows up, you're going to whisk that person in to see His Holiness because of all the good that could be done charitably to the organization in the end, somehow. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas you have some Ani sitting out in the in the waiting room who's never had a personal audience with His Holiness. You know, I mean, to use just one of an endless number of examples there. And so there's there are unhappy outcomes and incentives, however one structures anything. And 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 what I found for myself is in digital media. I think we are all suffering the consequences of having been anchored to an ad-based model where everyone's intellectual property is, is valued essentially as zero. There's kind of a race to the bottom. It's all should be, it all should be free and freely accessible to everyone. And the only way to subsidize it is ads, right? That's, yeah, that's the, yuck, the thing yeah. to which we're, you know, that, that's how the internet has been built for the most part. And we're dealing with the literally society straining and even shattering consequences of that. And I think the the reboot we need is a much more of a a you get what you pay for kind of model, which is a you know a subscription based model. I mean this is why to speak somewhat loosely here but not totally inaccurately, you know, this is why Facebook is endlessly promulgating misinformation and exporting its chaos to the rest of society, whereas something like Netflix is just, you know, entertaining people in a totally order orderly way, and there are no ads, and people just, it's all working. And the difference there really is, is a matter of, you know, free and paid in large measure. Yeah. And so, you know, in having to navigate this, you know, I've decided that that free isn't good for a digital business and for for society ultimately I mean again you can it would take a, a full hour to defend that thesis but money should never be the reason why someone can't get access to not just the contents of waking up but you know, you know speaking personally for myself for all of my digital content so this is also true of my podcast as well and anything that I that I actually control that I put out digitally and so I've just, you know, created a system where, you know, I, I keep reminding people of this and, you know, the thought never goes away that, you know, if money is the reason why you feel you can't get access to this, well, then just send an email and you get it for free. And, and that's the way I've sort of split the difference here. And it's, and I, you know, and, and many people do that, as I, as I told you, and it's wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel incredibly grateful to have found a business model where I can 
I can do that. I, I can give what I what I and now many others who are who are working you know, on waking up and and for me and in on my podcast. I can give the the fruits of our work away for free because that's what a digital business allows you to do. I can't do that with physical books or anything else. I've been any other kind of business I've been involved with. So mm. it's wonderful to be able to do it. But it's um, anyway. So engaging you has been interesting because you can't be commercial. And you, on your side, you really are offering everything for free with the technology available to you. But on my side, anyone who contributes content to Waking Up, in my view, needs to be paid or, you know, otherwise supported. And, you know, I'm very happy to be in a position to help support your practice down there in Australia and uh, Viveka Hermitage. And so, you know, listeners should know that that we're now doing that and they should know that they can do that and they need only find you remind me is it, it is it vivekahermitage.org dot com dot com that's our url yes www.vivekahermitage.com okay. yeah but and just to say on that note with your explanation which makes complete sense it's just recognizing that you know a lay life and a monastic life is very different in terms of what one needs to do and one how you know had the intention to practice and within the Theravadan it's also different from the Tibetan because the Tibetan nuns a lot of them have to work to yeah. survive yeah. and we don't we don't have that option and we're not if you do you're not really considered a proper ordained nun within Theravadan so we have to live on donations and, and alms offerings but you know you have huge overheads <laughs> With yep. waking up, you've got staff to pay. You've got, I don't know, I can't imagine how many expenses you have, taxes and all that sort of stuff. And my life's very simple and I, cho- I chose to keep it that way. So I don't have staff. I'm it, you know, I'm the only staff I have to pay. Hmm. And um, my overheads aren't huge. You know, there's living costs, of course, but it's it's a very different scenario. So I guess I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do it like that, but I'm also, I have to, in order to have any integrity as a Theravadan Buddhist nun yeah. and to keep, to keep my precepts and practices within those boundaries. But it's certainly not a judgment that therefore everyone in the lay community should be offering it free. And it's like, you've got to survive. You know, you've got to feed your family and pay all those expensive things that the world demands of us so but where we can be generous and and offer free things for free that's great are you doing alms round to where you live or are you, you, have you retired no, that yeah. i think i think we we'd probably be thrown out of town if we started <laughs> or, or, or star, starved to death yeah, <laughs> yeah at right. least uh, no we yeah. wouldn't they're very nice people down here and they're used to the tibetan center because before kempo was here with the saki and it was namkai norbu's place uh-huh. Uh, oh, so nice. he was here for, in his community, was here there for, oh, gosh, I don't know, 10 years or something. But Namkai decided it was too cold down here for him, so he just kept the one centre up in um, Queensland where it's warmer to come out because he used to come out every year hmm. when he was alive. So they're used to Buddhists around here, and it's a slightly, this you know, pockets of quite alternative people who are into spirituality. So we could go arms round, but... Um, as seminaries, we don't need to because uh, we're only 10 precept nuns. We're not mm-hmm. full, full oh, ordained bakunis because that makes life much more complicated if you're trying to keep those yeah. over 300 precepts, you know. Um, 
So, but we keep it simple. We just yeah. do things simply and eat the one main meal a day and stuff like that. All right, Jayasara, it's um, it's great to have you here and uh, to be continued. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation, Sam. And I hope that the the readings are that the resonate as much with your listeners as they did with you. So we'll see how it goes. Hey, I will. I will ensure that. Yes, I will. <laughs> I will browbeat my captive audience until they see it the way. Do you the get feed, do. do you get feedback? Do you say, oh, hey, yeah. or do you just look at analytics or something like that? No, no. I, well, we get um, reviews in. Uh, I get reviews in the yeah. app store, right? So there's their reviews, oh. and I, uh, I I continuously see them stream in because we, they they get piped into our our Slack channel at waking up. So you oh. know, where, where I and the other employees of the of the company. Are, are you know communicating on a daily and you know and, and minute by minute basis most days um, we see reviews come in and I mean now I'm speaking to our audience they're really they're quite wonderful and the psychological effect is really great because it, it's very you know without seeing that feedback it would be easy to just sort of forget yeah. that you're actually helping people and changing people's lives and their their people every minute encountering these ideas for the first time and feeling the full 20 megaton implications for themselves personally and it's mm. it's amazing to see and um yeah so I, I, yeah so we do see that and yeah we will hear about how how people how how your readings land for people when we when we drop them in the app great. so it'll be great great yeah yeah so, wonderful yeah all right well keep it simple jasara <laughs>